0: You're listening to Plenary Session. This week on Plenary Session, I have a couple things for you. I have an interview with Dr. Alan Pannell. And he's going to take us through a single clinical trial that has been interpreted in two ways. One, a frequentist way, and two, a Bayesian way. So you can compare and contrast the two methods. And hopefully we're going to have a little discussion that pushes back on, I think, a lot of the rhetoric in this space and tries to make it very practical. So I I hope you stick around for that and I hope you find it interesting. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, I need you to do three things. One, go to patreon.com and back this podcast. Backing an artist you support on patreon.com is a great way to keep something going. Next, go to the iTunes store and don't just give us five stars. Write a review. Tell us what you like about the podcast and what you don't like. A written review goes a long way. Third, recommend Plenary Session to a friend. If you have a friend, a colleague, someone you think is going to like this podcast, give them a recommendation. We can use it on Plenary Session. Now, what can Plenary Session do for you? Well, we can answer your questions. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or send us an email at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like listener comments and questions and we're happy to talk about them on the next episode. First, I got busy this week, so I don't have time to talk about many topics, but there was one topic that's been lingering that I'm supposed to talk about in the monologue and I figured now's your shot. You're going to hear about it right now. And that topic is my feelings on medical writers for pivotal randomized control trials that are often published in top tier medical journals such as the New England Journal of Medicine. And in a prior podcast, I think I pointed out that that particular paper had employed medical writers. um, And I think I've done that quite frequently on this podcast, I'm quite critical of it. And somebody said, you know, why are you critical of that practice? And I said, you know, I'll take some time to kind of articulate that on the podcast. I guess I'd say that, you know, we can have um, a whole bunch of conversations about what I think the downstream effects and implications are of having medical writers craft that manuscript. But let's just start with, I think, the sort of the principled argument uh, to be made here as to why I find it problematic. And that principled argument is quite simple. Um, In, I believe, most of modern society, particularly higher education and and scholarship at the academy, there is a rule, often explicit um, but at the minimum implicit, that when you put your name on something and you say you wrote something, that you actually wrote it. I mean, It has even to the point where there are a number of issues that that arise around the question of perhaps even if somebody has self-plagiarized themselves, are they saying something they've said before? And even that has come under criticism, and we can have that conversation perhaps another day. But at a minimum, I think we all agree that if you submit a paper to a class, and this is something you should have learned in childhood, and your name is on there, and you say you wrote it, you should have written it. And if you didn't write it, and somebody else wrote it, and you're putting your name on it at the end, I think we have a problem. We have a problem of minimum ethics, a problem of credit, a problem of um, academic uh, accolades that may come from that paper. I mean, we have a big problem. And so I would say at first pass, if a medical writer has drafted the manuscript predominantly, which may well be the case, um, and that person is acknowledged in a footnote, and then the authors who are listed one, two, three, and last didn't contribute meaningfully to the writing. I mean, I think you have a problem. That's one. Two, I mean, I think there's clear guidance in ICMJE documentation as to what constitutes authorship. And so, again, I think you also have a problem from a current guideline-based technical standard. So I think you have this kind of principled argument that, that it's wrong to do that, and I think you have this sort of technical argument that you may not qualify for authorship. Then let's talk about sort of the real reason it's done. I mean, the real reason I believe it's done is that... When you get somebody who's a specialist in messaging, that person can craft a message in a way that really upsells the positive attributes and downplays the negative attributes, even glosses over the negative attributes, and puts everything in a positive light. For instance, I believe one of these trials we were talking about, um, it didn't say um, the intervention failed to improve health-related quality of life. It said health-related quality of life was preserved Uh, among patients who receive the intervention. Uh, But that language preserved, meaning it was of some comparable extent, that's the language of a non-inferiority claim. And of course, this is not powered for a non-inferiority margin uh, that's meaningful around the health-related quality of life metric. So I think to say it's preserved is actually a misstatement. It's wrong. But moreover, it's a cleverly crafted way to avoid saying the truth, which is, we tried to improve it. That was what we said we'd do, and we didn't do it. Okay, so it's cleverly crafted. And I think that the purpose of the medical writer is to cleverly craft the paper in a way that really sells the product that's talked about in the manuscript. And, and you know, if you listen to this podcast, you listen to all the episodes, you'll see there's abundant evidence that that's the case. I've tried to point out that language um, whenever I can. Um, so this person who wrote in said, you know, you make a number of good points, but by hitting on this medical writer point, you're you're really hitting a sore spot. Um, and maybe you're kind of, you know, pushing some people who would otherwise be sympathetic to the argument away. And I guess what I want to say is that, look, I want to win the argument uh, in, in all the places. So I, I want to win on the merits of the argument on some of these trials. Um, you know, and if you disagree, you're welcome to come on this podcast and tell me what I get wrong. You're, you're welcome to. I, I, I'll keep checking. I'll hit refresh on my inbox right after this. Um, but. I also want to win on, I think, the procedural points of, of contention, which is that we live in a manuscript ecosystem that's problematic in a number of ways. Just another way it's problematic is something that I've been wasting you know too much time right now on Twitter about, which is... The medicine by press release. I mean, people are talking online about what this lung cancer screening trial called Nelson means uh, for patients. And they, they, they point me to an ASCO Post report from uh, September 26, 2018. Uh, it is um, June 2019. And I, I can't read the paper. I cannot read the paper. I cannot look through the paper and and look through the tables and figures, look at the population, look at the outcomes, look at the supplement. I cannot look at this, the supposed um, lung cancer screening trial that is practice-changing confirmatory study with huge public health implications. I cannot read that paper now more than seven months after it has come out. How on earth is that acceptable? How is that acceptable to the people who participate in this study? How is that acceptable in any ecosystem of dissemination of science? That's not acceptable. Similarly, how is it acceptable That you're going to get people who put their name on a manuscript, giving it the um, credibility of their career and that, and you know what this person has worked for, when that person may not have actually written the manuscript. How is it that the behavior that would lead you to be expelled from the majority of 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 higher education schools is tolerated at this level? It simply boggles the mind. So I think I want to win on the procedural argument here, which is it isn't just the content of science that has at times has limitations and I have to say at times because of course I think science is the only path forward the best way forward it's also the way in which we've allowed the dissemination to be taken advantage of by for-profit entities so in this case somebody was saying you know the top journals they won't allow preprints and I was like as if I care as if I if as if in one hand I have what's good for every single person who is at high risk of having lung cancer in one hand what's good for those people and on the other hand, I have, what's good for the CV of 25 people? What's good for them? Is that even a contest? Is that even a question? Of course, what's good for their CV matters nothing at all. And the lives of every single person who's at high risk of lung cancer because of smoking history matters a great deal. So it's a, it's a no question. It's a no-brainer. You post the preprint, and if you lose a high-profile article, so be it. You lose a line on your CV. Big deal. That's a, That's a no-brainer choice. Similarly, in this ecosystem of like publication, um, do we really want a system where people have their cake and eat it too? They're the named PI on a study. They may not have even been the primary accruer for that study. They may not have even written the manuscript. They may not have even independently analyzed the data themselves. In fact, almost surely they did not have that opportunity to do that. And yet somehow they're the first author. First author in what sense of the word? In in no sense of the word, according to anybody who's actually done research themselves and rolled up their sleeves and got in the data set and understood the thorny complexity of programming and analytical choices in the data set and actually at the end of that process has the courage to say this is the work I did that I wrote up and here's how I'm presenting it to you in no sense are those two senses of authorship the same they're very very different and so I think sort of I mean I think we have to also think deep and hard about our current system of disseminating scientific results. And so I say, as general rules, we need less medicine by press release. We need more posting of tables and figures and preprints. We need less White House spokesperson and we need more CBO. And that's the difference here. The, the medical writer is the White House spokesperson. They're the person who polishes the language, who's good at the messaging. But we need more CBO estimates. We need to know how the estimate is derived and what it means for people. And I think that's why I push really hard on the medical writer issue and I think that academics can clearly set a standard you know we're going to write our own papers and, and that's just what we're going to do if you want to work at our institution you want to run trials here we're going to write the papers so on that positive note we're going to turn to the, the interview with Dr. Panel Bayesians and Frequentists you're, you're going to get your say I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Alan Pannell. Dr. Pannell is Professor of Business and Statistics at the University of Tennessee. He also has a deep interest and knowledge in breast cancer research and breast cancer clinical trials. And he is here on the Plenary Session stage to talk about, I guess, several interesting topics, but one of which is something that we've been talking a lot about on Twitter, which is the eternal rift between the Frequentists and the Bayesians. And so we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about so much more. Um, so I want to thank you, Dr. Panel, for coming here on the podcast via Skype.
1: Oh, thank you. It's, uh, it's an honor and a pleasure. Good good to meet you, uh, besides Twitter, I guess.
0: Outside of Twitter, it's good to meet yes. via Skype. Yes, it is. You know, I was wondering, before we jump into this topic, which I think is so interesting, I wonder if, we, if you might want to comment a little bit about something, I think, which is even one step above this, which is, you know, when we're talking about statistics, even more broadly, what we often talk about in clinical trials is kind of thinking probabilistically, uh, thinking in terms of that events occur, uh, not with certainty, but with probabilities. And that if you look at lots of people in a group, some people may have events and others may not. Um, But there is some element of randomness to who has the event and who doesn't. And and thinking probabilistically about medicine is very important. It allows you to realize that um, some risk factors may only be modestly associated with differences in probabilities. They're not all or nothing that um, that things exist on quite a spectrum with with very different effect sizes and very different shifts in probability. Is that kind of how you think about medicine, or you know how do you, how do you approach it even more broadly than this
1: well so the majority of my career, till the last five years, as my title says, has been in business, and and those exact same issues are issues in business. Um, to understand variation, to understand that uh, life is stochastic, mm-hmm. um, and to you know uh, look at numbers and, and try to decide if there's a signal there inside of the noise, and whether to react or act upon it, uh, and and whether or not to. Um, and in business, uh, managers are notorious for treating uh, everything uh, as an outlier, <laughs> as a special event or an extraordinary responder. If right.
0: You will. Yes. And
1: I, I spent most of my career beating them over the head to get them to stop that and, and to fix the system, to fix the process. And, and so you, you can think about you know a, a clinical trial is trying to get at the, the system, the process, and, and look through the noise.
0: That's so well said. You know, in business, I feel like people look at a company. If the company's successful, then they're saying whatever they did, that's the recipe for success. If we interviewed 50 successful CEOs, you've got the recipe for a successful CEO. Uh, but they don't realize that the real question is: of all the people who exhibit those traits over the other kinds of traits one might want exhibited, what is the probability of success in that group versus the probability of success in the other group? And and a lot of it has just got to be driven by chance. I would I would think.
1: Uh, yeah, chance, and of course, you know, you're you're well versed in issues of confounding. Yes. In the business world, we worry about those a little less. Um, not that they're not there; they're there, uh, but we're we're willing to make decisions. We're willing to call correlation causation. We, we we know it's not, but we're willing to do it because all we're risking is money. Mm-hmm. And in medicine, we're risking lives, and um, that's been a key. I guess lessons learned for me is, is uh, I, I've I had to up my seriousness, I guess, of my own you know, industry. Um, and uh, uh, so, you know, and, and mistakes in business uh, cost money. They're easy to fix. Uh, mistakes in medicine take a long time to figure out.
0: That's well yeah, so. put, yeah. And, and they can cost lives or really result in um, misplaced opportunity cost and, and really have sort of, I think, effects catastrophic in a greater degree than in the business world. Well, yeah, I,
1: I, yeah, I think of uh, Mukherjee's book, um, and the, I think it, I read this story in there, but it was at the 80s where, based on one study out of South Africa, we did um, bone marrow transplant for metastatic breast cancer uh, for almost a decade mm-hmm. until – we finally figured out you know that, that data was falsified and it wasn't working right so that took 10 years right right so coca-cola came out with new coke whenever that was back in the 80s and 90s and lost millions of dollars but it took them nine months to figure it out right and they were going concerned they're doing just fine so anyway right it's um the the the, the concepts are the same life is stochastic um uh there are covariates in life <laughs> and um one of my mentors said, it just boils down to separating signal from noise.
0: yeah, that's that's well put. And you know, it kind of makes me reminds me of uh, something I was just listening to, David Epstein talk about his new book, um, which is called Range, and he was talking about the difference in learning environments between kind and wicked learning environments. And one of the points he was making was that in some um, fields of life, such as playing chess or maybe even business, um, they're kind learning environments in the sense that you often get immediate, feedback about what you're doing, and you can kind of adjust course accordingly. So for instance, in chess, you're not playing well, you're going to lose. It's very quick. Um, but in right. wicked learning environments, of which probably medicine is perhaps one, if not the most emblematic of that, you may not always be getting feedback. So a doctor may see a patient and act and may not actually know what happened to that patient long term, or or the outcome, the long term outcome may be at a, such a distance that, you know, as in the case of autologous stem cell transplant for breast cancer, um, you know, it really requires many, many women to be followed for many, many years, and of course, there's a huge selection bias, and your kind of um, individual perception of what the impact of what you're doing um, that might be really off the mark, as it was in that case. And so, it's a wicked learning environment because it's very wicked and difficult from you for you to learn from experience and course correct, and and that might be also true of the way in which we approach evidence.
1: Um, well, I agree with all that. I, you know, one of the hot things in business now, you know, digital marketing. I can run a 31-variable factorial experiment mm-hmm. in digital marketing and get the results in two days, and and maximize the process, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, right? And and, and we can't, we, you know, we can't do that in medicine.
0: We can't do that in medicine. So, That's well put. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about frequentists and Bayesians. Um, All right. What? What is – I mean, I I guess I would say – we can just say right off the bat, there are some people who feel very, very passionately about this issue, um, almost – Approach it with religious fervor, that one group is right and one group is wrong. Um, I would say anecdotally, and I haven't studied this, but anecdotally, I would say that those who have embraced Bayesian thinking um, are more likely uh, to really view it as the superior way of thinking about statistical analysis. Um I think frequentist might not be as outspoken, or maybe that's just the way um you know, it seems in the modern age. I don't know how how do you how do you view the two camps?
1: Well, of course, I, I was trained by frequentists uh, before we even knew we were those uh, frequentists, <laughs> right. right? yeah. And um, I've been studying, deciding for my own personal self, you know, what role will Bayesian methods play in what I do for probably you know, 10 years, not like every day 10 years, but just, you know, when it comes up or so forth. And um, I, I've not been, you know, a preacher, if you will. Right. Um, I think t- today... I'm more than happy to say that that I've reached the conclusion for myself okay. that um, Bayesian methods. Um, I, I don't have a role for for them for me in in what I do and what I might do. I understand them from my training. That if I, if I you know read a paper with Bayesian methods in them, I can interpret. Um, and uh, but I I don't see a need at least in the, some of the straightforward applications, say a clinical trial analysis, um, there's some computational niceties of Bayesian methods and simulations and, and, and some complex things that that I don't do every day or don't do. So, you know, I, I, I won't make a comment on that, but I, I now can... You know, if you'd asked me two weeks ago, I would have said I'm a frequentist, but I got one eye on Bayes because there's a lot of smart people who are Bayesians, right? And a lot of cool and a lot of cool people who are Bayesians, absolutely. And I mm-hmm. like to be cool and smart, right? Right. <laughs> you know, so. Uh, but um, this this paper we're going to talk about, they did such a nice job of taking a real example and applying the Bayesian methods. You know, they reached the conclusion that the Bayesian methods were, were superior. Um, I took the same paper, just their analysis, and it demonstrated to me my um, you know belief in, I guess frequentist if, if we're going to use that, that terminology. And some of it's philosophical, but some of it's some very simple arithmetic. okay? There' are no calculus or you know anything needed. Um, the philosophical arguments, those are the kind of things I don't know that you end up settling. Uh, but we'll talk about that. And then there's a few things that, in my mind, are just simple arithmetic that, that don't meet uh, face validity. So anyway, we'll,
0: so we, I guess, we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. I want I want you to walk us through this paper. But first, I guess I just want to give a little bit more background about frequentists and bays. And would you say yeah. – I don't know. The way I've always thought about this is that the frequentist school of thought uh, goes back to R.A. Fisher um, and, yes. and some of the early work which had to do with if you were to – randomly assign different plots of land to different ways in which to grow a crop, such as wheat, Um, and you wanted to know, is one method of growing wheat actually better than another method? Understanding that even if you did the same thing on all the plots of land, by chance alone, there's gonna be some variation in how much wheat grows on one spot and the other spot. And so you need a statistical way of looking at this and saying, you know, Um, How likely is this difference in outcome of the amount of wheat that these two fields have produced? How likely is that to occur under the assumption that there is no difference in, in the production of these two fields at all? And how likely is it, alternatively, the alternative hypothesis, that something I did has actually influenced there's more weed in one spot than the other? Um, and it really doesn't take into account much about the pretest probability. In fact, not at all that you know some method is superior to another method. It really has to look – looks at what might have happened under the assumption that there is no – True difference between these two two groups, and in contrast, the good the good Reverend the good Reverend Bayes um, he pursued a theorem of of sort of a philosophical view of statistics where he emphasized the fact that one can only think about probability as a conditional probability. One must know, you know, what is the likelihood something is going to work at the outset? So, you know, we're trying these cancer drugs. What's the pretest probability these cancer drugs work? And then now that I've added the information I've collected through this clinical study, what is my new post-test probability these cancer drugs work, say, for instance? So that's the way sort of the good reverend would approach it. Is, is that kind of a uh, an apt layperson uh, summary of it?
1: it? It is. I'll add a couple of things. Yeah. Um, I think Laplace... Actually gets credit for Bayes theorem and and named it after him if I remember my history, but Mm. I'm not a history buff. But gotcha. um, And have you read uh, Lady Drinking
0: Tea? Yeah, the Lady Tasting Tea. That's a great. Tasting tea. Yeah, the Lady Tasting Tea. And the epic question of uh, if you add the milk to the tea, is it different than adding the tea to the milk?
1: the mill and, and and I don't know to what degree that's I'm sure it's a semi true story yeah. um, to what degree but it, it seems to be the for the focal point of the concept of a hypothesis test and and uh, so anyway people might if they're interested in Fisher that that that's a great little little book and and, and talks about it um, yes so what you just laid out I think are some of the philosophical arguments yeah Um and I don't know if they can be solved, but I think um, that looking at this example, I was able in my own mind to 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 wrestle with those philosophical issues in, in a way that really I hadn't been before. So I, I, again, I thought it was a very good example. That you know, the whole thing of the prior probability—you know, what percent of hypotheses turn out to be true? Right. So should right. should we put should we put a prior probability on that? Right. Well. Okay, I'm not going to argue it philosophically. I'm just going to say this: we're yeah. not drawing a hypothesis from a bowl.
0: Right. There are reasons why some are pursued and not others.
1: Yes, and um, oh well, let me back up. Let me say one thing: I have no qualms with Bayes' rule.
0: Mm, right. Bayes' rule. Your
1: Bayes' rule. It's like it's like you know, gravity. Right. right? Absolutely. There, there's no. There's no. There's, there's no, no debate. debate of that. Right.
0: It's no absolutely debate. true. I see. So absolutely. I guess, I guess what you would say is, and kind of this is the way I view it. I mean, any every doctor uses Bayes' rule because all of us use tests for diagnostic purposes, and and you have to be Bayesian when you think that way. But I guess what you're saying is, when you think about clinical trials, at the end of the day, you can have whatever school of philosophy you want, but at the end of the day, what matters is how are you going to walk? What are the conclusion you're going to walk away with when you when you perform a trial and you look at that trial? And how does something yes. perform operationally? What does it mean in an in an actual practical context? What is your takeaway message, right?
1: Exactly. Okay. And, and you know, take take the the argument or debate about understanding confidence intervals. Right. Actually, most of my teaching historically has been MBA students. Right. And I don't even teach them the proper way to say a confidence interval. Correct. Interview. I don't test them on it. I teach them how are you going to make a decision in business, and and how are you going to talk to a statistician if you're working with them. So you know, you know, when we if we publish papers and stuff, you got to use the proper definition, but but, uh, but and, and, but, and well, just
0: to, and just to because I always I always struggle with this, but I always forget it. But I know there's proper. So I guess I'd say the incorrect thing people say is there's a 95 percent chance that the point estimate falls within this range. And that's wrong. It says that well, in 95. If you did this study 100 times over, 95 percent of the time. The true interval falls within the confidence interval, that sort of thing it's It's even bigger uh, than if, in one specific case, it's all or nothing, and it has to do with the yeah. probabilistic if you ran this trial over and over over again yeah. right
1: yeah, I, yes, you roughly got it, but, <laughs> but think about that that's because somebody a hundred or so years ago called it that yes what if what if um, Fisher had called it a probability interval and we and we just never had that debate right and, and Regardless of what the theoretical truth is, yes. if you look at a confidence interval on a uh, risk ratio and um, it, it doesn't contain one and everything – and you've done – I mean, you you analyze clinical trials like nobody else, right? You've done all your analysis. You trust the trial. It was run well. That interval doesn't include one. Uh, you're going to you are gonna go, I'm going to use this new intervention, right?
0: Absolutely. I'm going to hang my hat on whatever that conclusion is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Whether you used in your mind the word probability or confidence or chance is is really
0: irrelevant. Okay, I like you, I like I, the I like the way you're talking about it because you're right. At the end of the day, this is about real people making real decisions for other real people is. in the real world. And you know, theory is one thing, but when you're in the clinic, what are you going to do on Tuesday? That's the real question. It, it,
1: exactly. Okay. And so, so, I think that's why the intellectual philosophical debates, you know, get us nowhere
0: yeah <laughs> yep. yeah right
1: you, you know we, 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 we still have our Bayesians we still have you know um, uh, so anyway that that's I'm a very uh, applied statistician um, and, and and practical and and, and so that that's kind of how I look at it
0: okay so now let's jump in on the paper so this is a beautiful paper that you and i think somebody might have pointed it out to you but there's two papers here uh, there-
1: dr dr frank harrell
0: i'll give oh, him credit okay uh, he he tweeted it, he and, tweeted I, it. and i and and i guess i would say that i would say frank harrell falls within that category of being both super duper smart and super duper cool and i think all of us kind of aspire to be more like him um he also is yes. a super duper bayesian that's a fact he's really into being a bayesian um and uh, and you know i guess i got to love him for for taking a firm stand but now we're gonna see where the rubber meets the road. And so in this example, um, I think readers can go, one, one part of the example is a paper by Rupert Pierce and colleagues called The Effect of a Perioperative Cardiac Output-Guided Hemodynamic Therapy Algorithm on Outcomes Following Major GI Surgery. And my understanding is, is that after a major GI surgery, you're randomized to looking at things like the left ventricular output and things like that to help guide fluid boluses and inotrope administration uh, versus usual care where we probably use some of those medicines but we didn't follow this algorithm. And the primary endpoint of this study was a composite of death and a whole bunch of uh, adverse endpoints that are like many, maybe like 10 different things or 20 different things. Um, And in the frequentist analysis, um, the P value was something like a 0.07, or actually I see here the overall mortality was a 0.09, but the P was above the historical cutoff of P of 0.05, and it's it's written up like a negative study. And in contrast, you, you pair it with the BMJ open paper by Ryan and colleagues, which is the same exact clinical trial. Um, here the authors are doing something a little bit different. Uh, they're doing a Bayesian interpretation and they're walking away with the takeaway message that there's like a 97 to 99 percent chance that this intervention is actually beneficial. Um, so Basically the frequentist says, you know, back to the drawing board, and the Bayesian says, let's go, full force ahead. It, it, that's the bottom line. This is a great example where the two methods at least as applied by these authors, because that's not to say that they're applying the canonical definition, but as applied by these authors, the two methods reach divergent takeaway messages. Is that fair to say?
1: That's fair to say. One thing I'm unclear uh, uh, about is I don't believe they're implying... Apply Bayesian methods after the trial. Correct. I, I re, I'm reading it as if, what if we had specified this before the trial?
0: Good. Absolutely. Uh, right. So right. let's make now it fair. It, so it, it,
1: it occasionally reads differently, but I'm, I'm going to assume... that that that's what they meant. Uh,
0: Yeah, and and I think that's a super important thing. Let's just say why that's very important. I think you would say that whether you're Bayesian or whether you're frequentist, everybody agrees. um, You really only get one bite at the apple. Um, You you get one shot to pre-specify what you're looking for and you're not going to get a million shots thereafter to try to scrape out some benefit because we all know whether you're a Bayesian, a frequentist, or whether you don't believe in statistics at all, if you're allowed a total data set flexibility and you can mine it for whatever you want, you're going to find some end point and subgroup that benefits from anything on this earth you know so so we all agree exactly right so it's got to be pre-specified okay so let's say they had they pre-specified a bayesian approach that's the ryan paper had they pre-specified and they happen to pre-specify a frequentist approach that's the pierce paper same trial different interpretations okay now you tell me walk me through it what 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 do i need to know
1: well okay so um i'm I'm gonna hit three or four points a couple um In their abstract, um, they talk about the fact that the trial was not powered to detect the relative risk of 0.84 that resulted Hmm. with a p-value of 0.07. Of course, that's kind of redundant, right? Of course. If you're not statistically significant, you, you weren't powered to that. And I'll Um, just add
0: one thing, which is this is another thing that emerged where somebody looked at all the negative trials and surgery and said they were underpowered to detect the difference that was there. And they got crucified online because it's like power calculations cannot be post hoc, you know, looking at what you've observed. It has to be pre-specified power calcs.
1: Exactly, and we're on some of the same Twitter threads on on that. Right. And then – and then there's a comment: Bayesian analysis can produce results that are more easily interpretable and relevant to clinicians and policy makers. I just I just state that, that that's a theory; it's not a proven fact. And, and you know, run a run a randomized trial and, and prove it somehow. But uh, but let's let's talk about yeah. it a little bit. So um, I'm going to assume a Bay, you know everybody kind of understands Bayesian methods a little bit. I'm not you know yeah, Bayes rule where yeah. we're all bought into. But just one little note, they, we go from Bayesian methods, takes Bayes' rule, which is about a probability, and then applies it to a probability distribution. And they, they for a little while they drop the equal sign and put in a, a proportional to sign to deal with some mathematical issues. Not gonna deal with that, but okay. so, all right, we, we take that. And so we, we, we take um, some prior probability distribution, they chose the beta distribution. Okay. Um, you know, I studied that in school. I don't use it much, but it's it's just a distribution between zero and one with two parameters, alpha and beta. Right. And it's great. It's great for probabilities. And here's here's one complaint everybody has with Bayes. Not not a big one. I'm going to make today, um, but they chose that. Um, I won't get the exact quote, but I'll just because um, it was easy to use. That's in there somewhere. Mm, okay. All right. Yeah. And and we statisticians call that a conjugate prior. And okay. That means two things.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Now now think, you know, we can all multiply probabilities together, right? Yeah. Multiply probability distributions and likelihoods together. Uh, You know, just put that in your mind. Don't really do it. But if it's a conjugate prior, it means that arithmetic's easy. Right. Or easier. And I'm always for easy. (laughs) Um, But it also means you end up with a beta as a posterior distribution. So here's the complaint. We chose a beta because it was mathematically easy Mm -hmm. and convenient. We didn't choose it because it modeled any prior
0: information. Right, exactly. So I'm going to read the quote. I found it. We used beta distributions for the priors as these allowed for the posterior distribution to be calculated more easily for our data. But what you're kind of saying here is that one of the ways you could have really calculated the prior was you could have observed the phenomenon empirically for a long period of time in different data sets to see what the real distribution of the prior is.
1: Yes, you could. Yeah. You could. So uh, that's a common complaint. It's not my biggest one today, but I I, I did point that out. So now when we do prior distributions, there's basically three kinds. There's uh, what I call flat, what some people call uninformative. I disagree that that it's uninformative. It doesn't have a lot of information, but it's not uninformative. And, and and they only do two. which is the only two they do. They did an evidence-based prior. So a prior distribution based on some evidence that they have. And they, they based that on a, a meta-analysis. Okay. And um, and they did both to demonstrate what happens both ways. All right? I want to look at the uh, the flat, which is a, a beta 1-1, which is your – if you remember your stats class, it's just a uniform distribution. Right. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um what's the mean of a uniform distribution, 0. 0.5. Exactly,
0: the middle what's, of the point, yeah, the middle of distribution, the distribution. Yeah, right.
1: the median's 0. 0.5, and the uh, I'll give is, you bonus points. If you,
0: there's no mode, do it's, all, it's all the same. There's no mode. <laughs> yeah, right, do You remember no the variance. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> it's 1 it's 12th, mm-hmm. but anyway.
0: Mm-hmm. So, ah, right, the variance is 1, Oh, that's a good point, variance of 1/12. Okay. 1 okay. I had forgotten that. and yeah, each, yeah.
1: It, each probability is of equal, each value is of equal probability. So let me ask you a rhetorical question. You know, um is that uh, uninformative?
0: <laughs> no, I think it is. Right. It is making it, an it assumption about the, the characteristic of the data.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then they say this. Um, this really gets you the bottom. If you're following there, there, Dr. Prasad, page three. Yeah. The results from this – from the the um, flat prior, uninformative. Yeah. The results from this prior are unlikely to give different results from the original analysis true in terms of RR – but the interpretations are likely to differ, hmm. and later they say that, that they're, they're easier. So let's, let's, when you do a, a flat prior beta 1-1, one, one, yeah. literally, here's what it does. Yeah. You add one, whatever you're measuring here, yeah. your adverse event, yeah. and one not adverse event to your data set. Okay. okay. Now that's not how the Bayesians do it, but that's what you literally do. Okay. Okay. So if you add to your sample size of what was it, 300 and something? Yeah. Uh, add one more person that had an adverse event and one per person that did not in each arm. Okay. Okay. How how much you think that's going to change your results? Not
0: much. Not right? much, unless you're on the and cusp it, of a .05, unless you're right there. Well, right. Right. Yes. Yeah.
1: Well, and they got um, the original analysis was a relative risk of .84. Uh, with a 0.7 to 1.01 confidence interval. Yeah. Okay.
0: They got 0.77, the, the 7. yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, the flat prior gets 0.85.
0: 0.85, okay.
1: Pulls it, and then 0.7 to 1.0. So, gotcha, hey, I see
0: it, I see it, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Right, right, yeah, no di- No. No. real difference. Right. But the Bayesians, okay, so what did we literally do? We added four, two data points to each arm.
0: Okay, right.
1: Okay. An adverse event, a non. An adverse event, a non.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. And we get basically the same result.
0: And we contract now. The contract basis, the confidence interval a little bit. Yeah. Uh,
1: I'll do that. Let me do that on the informative okay, prior. Okay.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah.
1: But na- but here's the part that gets me with the Bayesians here. They now claim, because they used a prior, which all they did literally was add one adverse, one non adverse event, that they can call that interval a credible interval and call it a probability interval, but the frequentist has to call it a confidence interval and try and explain it. <laughs> okay. That's what they mean by now it's more interpretable. <laughs> okay. And that just doesn't pass, you know, um, face validity, right? Yeah. Um, so you, you run a clinical trial, you call your statistician in and you say, hey, I'm gonna do Bayesian methods. Uh, what I'd like you to do before we start the trial is add one adverse event and one mm-hmm. non-adverse and the adverse event to the data set in each arm. hmm That gets the exact same answers that the Bayesians get with a flat prior. Now that, that seems a little nutty to me. Now okay. let's go to the Yeah,
0: yeah. That's I agree. Let's yeah. go to the
1: informative prior. Yeah. All right. So this whole time I'm looking at this I'm thinking of of, of Frank, but here's the part where I thought of you. <laughs> I ended up tweeting you and got us here right today. Mm-hmm. Um, the The prior distribution that they specify, I won't give all the nerdy numbers, but it yields a prior relative risk. So we're specifying this before we start, a prior relative risk of 0.577 that's statistically significant. Mm -hmm. Think about that. We're saying before we run a clinical trial, we have enough data to claim that the intervention arm is better with a relative risk of 0. 0.577 statistically significant.
0: <laughs> in which case why would you run the trial?
1: And th- there you go. That's why I thought of you. In which case why would you run the trial? Okay? Uh-huh.
0: And so, and 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 when they end up with this, they're going to end up eroding their their estimate. They're going to be less exactly. confident in it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So now, now think about pre-specifying that. Can you imagine sitting in an IRB and saying, "We're going to we're going to do a prior that says our hypothesis is already true.
0: Okay, right.
1: Okay. So I've got a
0: problem with that. I've got a problem with it um, too. And then let me just say, make one yeah. point about the prior body of literature. From yeah. 88 till 2013, there were many studies, maybe 15 or 20 studies that were done in this space. They're very, very yeah. small. We're talking about um, single digit to maybe. Uh, you know, two, 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 maybe a dozen or two dozen events and very small clinical trials. And, you know, in, in a meta-analysis, it's something like they, they all have very low weighting. Um, and and that, go, that, ma- that matters because one wonders about, I guess, the prior is being informed by, to some degree, this prior literature. Um, but yes. the literature may be omitting negative studies that are unpublished, the so-called, you know, file drawer literature, the gray literature, right. um, you know, all these kinds of things. This may be sort of a skewed set of small underpowered studies.
1: Okay, so a couple of things. So first, historically, what do we use that prior information for? We use it to make power estimates,
0: exactly, to, right? To
1: to look for potential deltas, right, and, and so forth. And so, if the information were strong enough to be statistically significant in favor of the intervention, right, don't run the
0: don't run the clinical trial. trial. Okay.
1: Now, now let's argue that okay, that's what the data says, but it's retrospective or it's had yeah. these. So I don't want to. I'm going to run the trial. Fair. Yep. Okay. But, and again, the Bayesians are doing their Bayesian thing. But it's it's like adding patients to your clinical trial, fifty-six and sixty-six, before you start. <laughs> right. And declaring the percent that had an adverse event and the percent that did not. Right. So if this information wasn't good enough to keep us from doing a clinical trial, right? Why would we pre, you know?
0: stack the deck why would we stack the deck of our trial what you're saying yeah Yeah. right if this information if the reason Uh, you're doing the trial when you you look at the numbers and the numbers say this is a significant effect but yet you're still going to do the trial meaning you question those numbers so if you question those numbers why are you adding those numbers in that's what you're saying
1: right yeah and 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 i I, it the beta distribution is really they they were great to pick it and i'd for actually forgot um how how it worked yeah but i hope you get my point so the the, the Bayesians are, are doing the Bayesian thing, multiplying, getting their posterior distribution, and they're calculating. They got a relative risk of 0.81. Yeah,
0: using the evidence-based priors,
1: 0.67 to 0.95. You get that exact same number if you tell your frequent to statistician. Yeah to add 56 patients to the trial before we start in one arm, 66 in the other with the proportion of adverse events.
0: Okay, you know, right, yeah. It's, yeah. The same,
1: it's the exact same number.
0: Right, okay? right, yeah, right.
1: <laughs> and, and they point that out quite clearly in the paper. And so, instead of thinking of Bayesian as of this magical prior and, and likelihoods and all, and all that stuff, write the IRB that says, before I run my clinical trial, I'm adding fifty-six and sixty-six prior patients. I
0: see what the, you're saying.
1: With a relative risk of 0. 0.577 in favor of the intervention.
0: Right. It's not gonna. It's not gonna pass. It's not gonna go through. <laughs> right. Um,
1: it, it, it won't. What, but of course, I, I doubt the Bayesian would say it that way. Right. But, but,
0: right. But but numerically, those two scenarios are indistinguishable. Is your argument?
1: It's not an argument. It just they are. They are and right. It, it's I mean, a fact. I, I I I did the math. I put. I, you know i just added their alpha and beta from their beta distribution which is alpha is the number of adverse events and beta is the number of non adverse mm-hmm.
0: events okay yeah you
1: add it to their frequentist number hand it to your frequentist statistician and and to to the second decimal place they they did a kind of a weird thing using uh uh parameters with with decimals but you know the second decimal place rounding yeah you get the same answer um so I mean that did it for me right mm-hmm. that just says if you want to make an argument to include prior information so hey what if we had a trial and we got to a sample size of 56 and 66 and some bad thing happened we had to stop you know and then you picked up two years later with the same trial mm-hmm. let's see you me and, and sit around and argue do we include that data from our first try All right and if the answer is yes well then just put it in the data set you don't have to do any bayesian calculations just put it in the data set Hmm. and if the answer is no well for goodness sake don't put it in the data set
0: that's interesting yeah Um, okay
1: so anyway it comes down to that really for me um and then obviously they make the bayesian claim that now since i did this bayesian thing i can call this interval a probability interval Um, i can make probability statements like 96 percent chance that You know that the intervention is better, Um, and that that's philosophical.
0: Yeah, but I I guess that's the part that I didn't quite I didn't quite understand. How do they get to that exact 96% number from there? Okay. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm gonna say that I'm. I'm less confident in the answer I'm going to I didn't pre I didn't pre-check out that that okay. question. So okay. but I, but here's my here's my belief in that answer. Okay. One they they did some simulations. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. of, of which the frequencies can do bootstrapping and and do the same thing. That's true. Um but to me it's 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 the one minus alpha. Mm. It's the one minus it's 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 describing the p value in the way we don't allow ourselves to describe it. Right. Uh-huh, uh-huh, we don't say uh-huh. we're right, ninety three percent right. yeah. sure. Right. And that and so that's the philosophical part. Be- because I did used Bayes theorem sort of, mm-hmm. and Bayes called that a posterior probability. You know, or, or Laplace did, or somebody did hundred years, two hundred years ago, or whatever, three hundred. Do do I get to call it that? And I just say no. And and I think the simple way to think of it, because of this beta prior, is does adding patients to your trial before your start, just put them in the data set, then analyze your data, does that somehow give you a right to call something a probability interval instead of a confidence interval? (laughs) Right. It it doesn't pass – you know, face value, and I assume the Bayesians probably got great arguments from my arguments. I've, I've I've argued with them, you know, in the classroom and in the in the office and and so forth. But um, the use of the of the beta distribution here and its simple principle that y- you know that that you're literally adding the parameters alpha and beta to your data set, or you can literally um, just just really made it clear. I see. One of the things Bayesians say is they end up with tighter, credible, they call them credible intervals, but, but that their intervals are tighter and that that's a good thing. Well, yeah, in general, we all want tighter intervals, whatever name you give them. But why is their interval tighter? It, mm-hmm. It's not tighter because of better mathematical efficiency. It's tighter because we've assumed more facts and evidence.
0: Oh, right. right. Of course, right. Yes. So, right. so
1: I did a little um, thought experiment uh and I took a random sample of 16 numbers from a standard normal distribution and did a confidence interval, and I made no assumptions.
0: Right. Okay. okay.
1: Do you remember uh, Chebby theorem?
0: Oh, and it's ringing a bell, but I don't remember off the top of my head.
1: Yeah, well, we called him Chubby Checkers. But anyway, you know, we all use the like plus and minus two standard deviations in our mind. Mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. if you make no assumptions um, and use Chebby rule, you have to do plus and minus 4.47 standard deviations okay. or standard errors, mm-hmm. okay? So that would be pretty wide. Now if I make an assumption of uh, a unimodal, not too unskewed distribution, I can use the T distribution, right? Uh-huh. That That critical value is 2.13. What happened to my confidence interval? It just cut in half. Right. Now, if I assume I knew I had a normal distribution, then I can use the 1.96 we all use right. in stats
0: class. Right. right.
1: So every time I made an assumption, my confidence interval got skinnier. Right. But I still had the same 16 numbers.
0: Okay, right.
1: Okay? So the information content of those numbers can't change. Right. What changed was the assumptions I'm making. And if my assumptions are right, then I have a better interval. But if I assume I had... A sample size of 56 and 66 in each arm before we started. Of course, my my confidence intervals are going to be tighter. Hmm. I've got more data.
0: That's interesting.
1: It's that simple. It's not. It's not magic. It's not math. It's not efficiency. It's just you know. You assume you get. You assume more things. You get tighter intervals.
0: Uh, the one thing I was thinking about with this is. You know, at the end of the day, what are we talking about here? We're talking about, uh, you know, it's a lot of complicated words, but a cardiac output guided hemodynamic therapy. What does it actually mean? It means you monitor... You know, the hemoglobin, the mean arterial pressure, you're administering boluses to reach a maximal volume, a value of stroke volume. Um, and I gotta double check if they're measuring stroke volume based on some sort of dilution method or, you know, how they're exactly measuring stroke volume. Uh, you're giving uh, a, 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 an inotrope to kind of raise the heart rate. Um, I, I mean, the goal of this entire strategy is to improve perfusion um in the wake of a surgery one of the things that struck me is the secondary endpoint of mortality at 30 days is absolutely looks like there's no difference at all um you know at 1.08 but yet the authors kind of show um, mortality out, you know, even 120 days after surgery to show that you know the intervention really starts to kick in. Well, uh, when you're talking about you know three months, four months after surgery, uh, to me, of course, that's not a pre-specified time point. It's also not sure that you know immediate hemodynamic resuscitation is going to have a, a benefit on mortality. Uh, if the curves are touching at 30 days and there's a big difference in four months, maybe that's just spurious or just sort of the noise of the system. Uh, it's hard to attribute that to the intervention in the early phase, especially because. It's 30-day mortality there's no difference at all Um, but one of the things I was thinking about in terms of a Bayesian point of view here is you know of course we're talking about a particular insult which is a surgical insult Um, but what if one were to think about the Bayes probability even more broadly which is if you look in all of biomedicine at every single time in any single setting where somebody is hypoperfused and the goal is to increase end organ oxygenation delivery through vasogenic slash, uh, you know, uh, uh, hemodynamic resuscitation efforts, um, maybe one could look at the totality of the studies there, even more broadly than just the surgical sphere, including perhaps sepsis and cardiogenic shock and all these other things, um, and ask what is the, you know, what would the probability distribution look like before, and lump all that in? And I guess the reason I say that is to some degree it kind of goes to what you mean by pre-specified it would be great if they kind of agreed on what the the information that they're going to inc- they're going to add to the data set is a priori um, but one wonders you know there's no there's no necessarily reason why this is the information you add to the data set and not even a broader set of information uh, if you look at cr- if you look at broadly in resu- of this kind of resuscitation and across many many domains i think in medicine you would conclude that these kind of efforts have generally been rather negative and sobering, um, that they're unlikely to improve long-term outcomes. And it would be really unique if in this post-surgical setting, they really are somehow miraculous, uh, when they did fail to do that in, you know, in the replication study of early goal directed therapy and and things of that nature. But, you know, I don't know. I'm I'm just thinking aloud here of sort of what goes into that pretest probability.
1: (laughs) Well, and and again, I think, um, I think that goes into your decision-making. When you make a decision as a doctor, mm-hmm. you, you read the results of a clinical trial, regardless of how they were analyzed, you interpret them in your head, and then you've got to ask yourself a question, am I going to apply this new intervention or not? You are going to look at other information to make that decision, like you just went through. Um, and that's done in a non-probabilistic you know, mathematical way, and maybe the Bayesians would say, you know, that's part of the problem, we'd like to do it in, in a more
0: yeah uh, mathematical way. way right yeah
1: yeah and and um, I think that's a that's a good argument but I also think you could take a hundred Bayesians and give them the original paper and say demonstrate Bayesian methods you know uh, with this paper and would they have all got the same prior they have all used the same prior distribution probably because it's simple but you know so what information goes in there i think it's probably best to let the decision maker like you make the decision and not us statisticians
0: that's uh, interesting. that would be point one i guess i would add that i bet if you gave it to a hundred different people it would look a lot like brian nozick's paper uh, same data set many analysts and there'll be a sort of a range yeah. of different views
1: uh, on the red was that the soccer red yes no
0: exactly right the soccer it's, red. Yeah. yeah yeah exactly yes and and,
1: and and yeah and that pointed out some problems you know that, that's just you know we're dealing with uncertainty and stochastic you know stochastic and variation and 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 we'd like that all to go away but it doesn't and so mm-hmm. you know we, we end up making decisions I, I guess the last thing i'd probably say is you know you can debate this whole concept of a, a null hypothesis and so uh, the relative risk, the, the frequentest relative risk was what, 0. 0.84, 0.85? Yeah. Well, the most likely rel- true relative risk is 0. 0.85. That's how it got estimated, by maximum likelihood estimation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But that's not how we make decisions. We say, you're claiming something is better. You've got to test it against the standard, and you've got to beat it. Yeah. To be the champ, you know, you got to beat the champ. And, I mean, if we do away with that, then I'm going to run a sample size of three, and calculate my numbers and whichever one's the best, I declare it's the best, right? Yeah. We can't do that. And mm. so we end up, we got to compare it to the standard. The new idea has got to beat the standard and it's got to beat the standard with some level of confidence. We could debate. I personally, when I first learned alpha level in class, my in the business school, my professor said, we use alpha 0.05, but medicine uses 0.01. Well, that isn't true, is it? No,
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> I I got into medicine and, and th- was going. Look at all these .05s. Right. So you know, um, you know, there's things to argue there. Right. I, I just don't think Bayesian methods solves any of those philosophical questions, and then the decision making at the end of the day. And. Um,
0: when I got into uh, medicine I was always told that um, you know, for widespread interventions with huge population implication, we do two, not one, well controlled and adequately designed randomized yes. trials. And that's not true either. We don't do that. We No, I'm not that's sure, that's I'm not sure that we ever did that. Um but um yeah, people do say that. <laughs> um the one right. thing I was thinking about with this is, you know, here here again we're talking about something that you know, it's an it's an it's a de- debated intervention whether or not these kind of protocol specified um, you know measuring stroke volume. I see now it's stroke volume from waveforms to kind of get a sense of stroke volume uh, from arterial waveforms. You know, these whether or not this kind of hemodynamic information can be leveraged to give these medicines better and improve outcomes. It's an eternal question in medicine, from you know the Swan Gantz catheter to early goal directed therapy to you name it. It's a, it's a very common question and and there's lots of enthusiasm around it. Um, and I guess what I would say is. In this case you get a result that feels like, Ooh boy, that's really close and if you apply if you wanted to use this Bayesian framework, then you're able to say, Well, you know, it just tipped over and you know, it's it's not just really close, right. it's right there where you need it to be, so you better implement. Um, but I guess I would say that even if one approached this as a pure frequentist, as, as you know, I've been talking about on Bill Cap, um, you don't need to be and you don't need to apply a Bayesian framework to just kind of say, close enough, I'm going to do it, because people did that with Bill Cap with that P of .097, um, and, and yes. they felt like that was close enough. And then what I wanted to point out was that, well, if we actually did step back and look to the totality of the evidence, we'd see that this is one out of three trials that no one at the outset had any reason to think was more likely to succeed than the other two, and it just Happen to have the lowest p-value, and the other two are just stone-cold negative. And so probably the most parsimonious explanation is that we ran three negative trials, and one, by chance, happened to have the lowest p-value, but that's not how anyone wanted to see it. And similarly, one might look at this body of evidence and say, we've run so many clinical trials of using hemodynamic endpoints to guide the administration of these drugs and compare to usual care, and you know they generally just don't work any better than usual care, uh, um, because you're really talking about fractional differences in the administration of these agents and here you know maybe this is one of the lucky uh, outliers but it's probably uh, you know a really there's not really much here uh there's no real signal here um so i think that's another way to kind of look at this if you looked at really the totality but you know it, it, ha- it it's a very interesting thing you're pointing out here which is that i think you took this paper by ryan um you took them at their word they're using the bayesian approach um you, you know you're not criticizing them for being post hoc because that you know that's th- forgive them for that um but you're saying that it's actually not that different from the frequentist approach, just adding a few um, events. That's it.
1: I, I mean, I'm am I'm, I'm simple-minded. That yeah. That's and it's not that I'm uh, you know that that's a way to look. It, that is exactly mathematically what it is. Th- th- what what it is? Well, again, they w- they will have done it differently, but you do it that way, you get the same answer to two decimal places. And, and at the end of the day, you know, the first thought that ever crossed my mind when I heard Bayesian methods – or saw, was taught Bayesian methods was at the end of the day, the, the, the point estimate is a weighted average between your prior and your data. Mm-hmm. And you decide how much weight to put on your prior. Okay? Yeah. And, and because you have a prior, your confidence interval is tighter. And those are just mathematical facts. Yep. And we're talking about communicating better with clinicians – I would rather look you in the eye and say, Dr. Prasad, um, I'd like to add 56 patients to the control arm and 66 to the intervention arm with the following results before we start this trial. Um, and here's my rationale. Yeah. And have th- have that debate rather than me saying, hey, by the way, I'm, I'm a Bayesian. I'll be using a beta distribution with alpha of 16 point, you know, what, whatever it is, you know. Yeah. Uh, I think that's just a better, you know. Whether Frequentist or Bayesian, come let us reason together, you know.
0: It's yeah. just
1: a better, a better way to, to talk about it. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we statisticians, we're, uh, I think we're important, but we're not as important as, <laughs> as we think we are. And uh, um, I, I've always had the theory that, that my job is to make statistics as easy as possible so that more people understand it and more people can use it and if it puts me out of a job, so be it. I, I feel sometimes statisticians try to make it as complex as possible. <laughs> job security.
0: Yeah, and, and, uh, and, and that way they can launch a consulting company and run it on the side. There's one other topic I wanted us to mention before um, yeah. we wrapped up, but I wanted you to talk a little bit about Um, some of the work you had done in sort of creating a breast cancer advocacy group and and sharing of information online and and sort of what resources listeners might have. We didn't get to talk too much about it, but one of your interests is, of course, breast cancer clinical trials and how these are interpreted and implemented in practice. Um, So I wonder if you could talk about that.
1: I appreciate that. Um, So uh, breastconnect.org is our our website um, started by uh, breast cancer survivors in Knoxville, Tennessee, Uh, we now have about over 600 members Um, and that site was created by survivors uh, for survivors Um, it has you know helpful hints from survivors and then we also have links to i I put the links to the scientific information um, so that people don't go uh, looking at clinics in mexico or or things like that right Um, (laughs) and um so anyway that it's it's there that our main original goal um, which is working out fairly well is if someone new is diagnosed with breast cancer, um, if they go to that site, there's a big button that says uh, newly diagnosed, and it kind of says here's the most important three things you should do first. You know, get your medical team, g- get an advocate uh, um, or a caregiver, and etc. Um, and then um, also if someone says, hey, I'm 35 years old, her two positive, you know, three kids. Uh, and I'm going to do a, a lumpectomy. Can you match me with somebody with that exact same diagnosis? And generally, we can, if if they want to do that, to you know, to talk up to each other about how decisions were made and things like that. So that that's the the bottom line on that. And uh, I would hope your listeners uh, or or their friends and family never need that website. But it, but if they do, it's uh, breastconnect.org.
0: Well. Uh- Dr. Pannell, thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your busy schedule and coming on the plenary session stage and talking about this very interesting pair of papers. Um, you know, at some point we might have to have a real, you know, discussion between a frequentist, a Bayesian, and really kind of hit this <laughs> issue again. So I'd love to have you back in the future.
1: Well, I, I, will, I will do that. And, and um, of course, uh, I follow you on Twitter because I, I like your critical thinking style and skills. Um, uh, uh, the one place i always disagree with you on is is breast cancer screening so <laughs> m- maybe one time we could uh, we could talk about i don't want to do a point counterpoint okay <laughs> i, 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 I want to find the venn diagram i want to find uh-huh. where we agree
0: uh-huh
1: and uh so maybe we do that sometimes
0: okay so. well that sounds good yep i uh i like to I like to push on that screening issue, but uh, but I really appreciate your comments and um, there may be some Bayesians who listen to this and they may not like everything that you or I said, but i I hope that you know they know that uh you know i personally don't i don't have an axe to grind here too much i'm just trying <laughs> to do my best and i think you are too just a good faith effort of trying to articulate what are the differences in the theory um yeah. how are they similar how are they different how do they lead to different conclusions and you know how we need to think about them and so uh, you know i'm open to further discussion here but i guess um i'm obviously a little bit sympathetic to the way you're you're talking about this that's sort of the way i sometimes think about it so well thanks so much dr panel for coming on the podcast thank you Yep. All right, take care. Take care. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinai Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes Store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at Plenary underscore session or you can send an email to podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? Um, How can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.